1 Corinthians chapter 10, and my subject this morning is part number two of the message that I began last week entitled, Be Careful Not to Lose Your Balance. And here in the beginning part of chapter 10, we have a warning for every Christian that's in this room today. Every Christian has a sworn enemy, and he is determined that he is going to make your life miserable and ruin your effectiveness for God. When Paul first came to Corinth and he preached there, he found a city that was wholly involved in just about every pagan, heathen practice that was possible. Of all the cities that were in the Roman Empire, uh, Corinth was possibly the worst of them all. And if anyone throughout the empire wanted to give an example of moral decadence, all they really had to do was just mention the name of Corinth. In fact, if you were to look up the city Corinth in a Roman dictionary, or if you wanted to look up moral decadence, it would have uh, probably a footnote that said, see Corinth. That's how wicked that this city was. Well, Paul was able to preach the gospel in the city of Corinth, and there were many people who came to know Christ as the Savior. And through Paul's preaching, they began to leave their wicked, immoral lifestyles. But the problem was that Paul could not stay in Corinth for an extended period of time. Now, he did preach there for about 18 months, but he was a missionary. And so that meant that he couldn't spend all of his time there, so he had to travel to other cities and preach the gospel to other people. And so after uh, some period of time had passed, the people in Corinth uh, began to go back into their old ways. They slipped into their old ways, and they began to bring their former practices back into the church. Now, you have to understand that At at this time of the first century, this was a time of reason and philosophy. The people were very heavily influenced by the Roman philosophers and the Greek philosophers of their time. And so the Christian people started trying to apply those godless Roman and Greek philosophies to their principles of the worship of God. And Paul had made it very clear, even right here in this book of Corinthians, that God cannot be found out by human reasoning... The best of human philosophies will never find out God. And so he wrote in the first chapter, the world by wisdom knew not God. But here you have these Corinthians that think they are so smart and they believe that they're so spiritual, they can do just about anything that they want to do and they don't know that they are about ready to take a huge fall. And so Paul writes this letter of 1 Corinthians to show them that they aren't so smart after all. And they'd better be careful because if they're not, they could lose their balance. Now, this is the second part of the message that I preached last week. I'd like you to stand, if you would, please. And we look at 1 Corinthians, and we're going to read from God's Word today more about what Paul is warning the Corinthian people about. In verse number 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And he's talking there about the Red Sea, Israel coming out of Egypt. And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You remember last week we talked about that being the, the greatest understatement in the Bible. With many of them, God was not well pleased, when in fact, out of two and a half million people, God was only pleased with Joshua and Caleb. 
Verse number six. Here, here he says, now these are the, this is the reason why these things in the Old Testament are written. Now these things were our example to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Verse number 12 is the text verse. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We ask you to open up our hearts to the Word. We ask you, Lord, to speak to us through this and help us to better understand how that we can resist the temptations of this world and how that we do not have to suffer the same fate of so many Christians who have, who have become castaways in their Christian lives. So, Lord, bless in this message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like for you to peek back just a moment at chapter 9, the last verse of chapter 9, because this is the connecting verse that, that tells us where we are here in chapter 10. Paul says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What that verse means is that Paul did everything that he could to make sure that he lived in such a way that he would not be disqualified from God's service. Now, this is the third time that we've considered this verse, and I want to make this very clear to you one more time, that Paul is not talking about a Christian losing his salvation. Paul was not concerned about losing his salvation because no person who is a believer in Christ could ever lose salvation. And the reason that we can't is because our salvation is not based upon anything that we do or we don't do. Our salvation is based upon the merits of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it's what Christ does for us, not what we do. And we are kept by what Christ has done for us. So Paul's not talking about losing salvation. He's not concerned about that. But what he is very much concerned about is that he would not become a castaway from the Lord. And what he means there is that he would not become no longer, he would no longer be useful in God's service. He didn't want to be cast out on the dunghill of Christians, washed up Christians who never do anything for God. And so he says to these Corinthians, if you don't watch out, if you are not careful, then those of you who think you are so smart and so spiritual, you will fall. You are in danger of losing your effectiveness for God. And so he says, I don't want to fall, and I don't want you to fall. Now, here's a real good place for me to stop and remind everyone today that if you are saved, the world is watching you. Every place that you go, everything that you do, the world is watching you. 
Now, especially if you claim to be a Christian in this Bay Area of California, people are, are watching, and you can bet your bottom dollar they're waiting to see if you're going to do something wrong and if you're going to take a fall. The world is waiting just to prove that Christianity is nothing, that Christianity does not produce different people, that we're not different than the rest of, uh, of others in the world, and they're just waiting for you to take one misstep so they can claim that your faith is nothing but a product of a brainwashed mind. And so every time that a Christian leader in America falls, what happens? It makes the headlines of every newspaper in the country. The world does not concentrate on the good things that come out of Christianity and how lives are changed. The world will not concentrate about how that people are brought out of alcoholism and out of drug abuse, out of prostitution and out of gambling. They won't talk about how many pregnancies of teenagers have been avoided and how many babies that didn't have to be aborted. They're not going to focus on lives that are changed and people that are living in blessed hope. What they're going to focus on is the mistake And so when a Christian falls, when one leader in Christianity missteps, when he sins, you're going to find that splattered on every front page of every newspaper in America. Now, unfortunately, the thing that happens when a Christian falls is that all Christians suffer because of it. Our cause for Christ suffers, and it's destroyed because of our failures. And so what Paul is doing here, he's warning these Christian people, watch out for your life. Watch the kind of life that you live, because when you fall into sin, it will ruin your effectiveness for God. Now, I want to back up here just a moment, and we're going to review what Paul is talking about in this passage. Last week, I told you there are two very important topics that Paul addresses in these verses. And the first one is what happened in the past. And so he tells the Corinthians, consider the past. Well, what past does he mean? Well, he means go back and look at the Scriptures and consider what's happened to God's people in the old times. Now, what we would say and what normally I would say to you is go back and read the Old Testament. See what happened when people disobeyed God. Look at Israel and see what happened to them when they disobeyed. Paul wouldn't say that because he didn't have the Old Testament. He just had the Scriptures. It wasn't the Old Testament to him. And so he would say, go back and read the Scriptures. Think about what happened in the past. And what he's trying to do is to tell us how that, that exodus of the, of the people of God coming out of Egypt, he's making a comparison as how Christians in this day are brought out of the bondage of sin. So he gave them some pictures of salvation in these first few verses. Five pictures of salvation that Paul gave them. Now, we talked about these last week, but let's review them for just a moment. The first picture that he gave is conversion from sin. And that's pictured by Israel coming out of the bondage of Egypt. And so he says that when a Christian trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, they come out from under the bondage of Satan, they are delivered from their sins, and so that's a picture of when a person gets saved, he's converted from those sins. The next picture that he gives here is our baptism for obedience. Now, just like I said last week, baptism is the gospel in a nutshell. Baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When we get to chapter 15, uh, Paul will let us know there that the combination of those things, death, burial, and resurrection, that is the essence of the gospel itself. Now, he's not talking here in 1 Corinthians about a huge baptismal scene that took place in the Old Testament. 
Moses didn't take the children of Israel and baptize them in the Red Sea like we think of baptism. Now, he's actually giving them a picture that they could very easily understand. And that's the third picture that he gives, which is our identification with Christ. When we're saved, we identify with Christ through our baptism. Now, understand it very clearly again. Baptism never saved anybody. God did not give us baptism to save us, but that baptism is identification with Christ. And so when Paul talks about baptism in 1 Corinthians 10, and he says that Moses or the people were baptized unto Moses, that just simply means that they were identified with Moses as their leader. And when you are baptized, as a believer in Jesus Christ, when you are baptized, that says that you are identified with the leadership of Jesus Christ. That tells people that you are a disciple. You're a follower of Jesus. The fourth picture that he gives in those first few verses is our guidance by the Holy Spirit. So he talks about the cloud. You remember when Israel came out of Egypt that God gave a cloud to lead them. And that cloud was indicative of the presence of God. That was the Holy Spirit. And so Paul saying here that when you get saved, you have the Holy Spirit to guide you. Then finally, he gave one more picture of salvation, and this is our nourishment for strength. The manna and the water. This manna and water that God supplied for the Israelites as they went through the wilderness, that is a picture of the nourishment that God gives us through Jesus Christ. Christ is our spiritual nourishment. Now, as Janet just sang a moment ago, uh, Jesus is the water of life. And when he talked to the woman at the well, he said, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. And that's a picture of Jesus. Then Jesus also called himself the bread of life. He's the bread that came down from heaven. So he says, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. And just like God sent manna down from heaven in order to feed the Israelites, so God the Father sent Jesus down from heaven, and he's the one who becomes our spiritual nourishment. So Paul then gives us these pictures of the past to talk to us about salvation. These are pictures of what, of what happens when we get saved. But he goes on, because the next thing he talks about is the problem of sin. God provided abundantly for these people that were in the wilderness. He took care of their every need, but then they fell into sin. They fell into idolatry. They became guilty of sexual immorality. They tested God by, by taking of God's graces and yet at the same time saying that we would rather return to Egypt. And then they grumbled against God. They complained against Moses and Aaron and against God. And so Paul says in verse number 10, they were destroyed. Thousands of them fell across the wilderness. Verse number 5 says that they were overthrown. And literally, what that word mean, means, they were overthrown, it means that their carcasses or their bodies were strewn all across the wilderness, all the way from Egypt into Canaan. So Paul takes all of those things and he says that this is a comparison for you Corinthians. And he says in verse number 11, now all these things happened unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And so that's the first topic that, that he presents. The Corinthians are falling into the same sins that they fell into in the Old Testament. And so Paul says, consider the past. 
Don't get into those same types of sins because what will happen is that you will end up falling. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Those Israelites in the Old Testament, they were God's people too, but they lost their balance and they fell. And Paul is telling the Corinthians, this does not have to happen to you. Don't fall into these same sins. Now what you have right there, that's the short version of last week's message. It took me 45 minutes last week to tell you all of that. And so you're probably thinking, why didn't he preach it just like he did just now? That was last week's message. Now we're going to talk about the second thing that Paul presents in this. He tells the Corinthians to consider the past, but now he goes on into verse number 13, and he tells them, claim the promise. God has given you a promise, and God has made it so that you don't have to fall into sin, You don't have to end up being cast away in your Christian life. You can be effective for God, but it requires that you do something, and you have to watch out for the things he talks about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 13. Now, this is the transition verse, because Paul is telling them, telling the Corinthians, you do not have to suffer the same fate as those people of Israel. Look at verse 13 again. He says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now we're going to break that verse down today, and we're going to talk about what does Paul mean here? How can we avoid falling into sin? Well, we notice that the first thing that he talks about here is temptation. What does he mean by temptation? Well, let's define that. Temptation is a thought that enters your mind that suggests you commit sin. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the suggestion for sin. I know there are many Christians that they get very upset about this and they think, well, I'm not a very good Christian because they're, they're... Thoughts that come into my mind, evil things come into my mind, and they think that they're terrible Christians because they think bad thoughts. But the fact is, temptation as it enters the mind, that is not the sin. But that's where sin starts. If you're human, and if you're alive, and if you are a Christian, you can be sure of this, you are going to face temptations. That's inevitable. Temptations come into your life. But when you have that temptation, the thing to do is to deal with it in the thought processes, not to act upon that. Don't, don't, don't enter into it, and when you don't enter in, you are resisting the temptation. James says in James chapter 1, he says, Let no man say, when I am tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So James says, God is never going to tempt you to sin. Now, God might allow and will allow sin to come into your life, so, or temptation, rather, to come into your life so that you can learn to resist it and become stronger by resisting those temptations. But God is never the one who actually sends you the temptation. Now, in verse number 14... He says that every person has this propensity to lust. And so when the temptation comes, they are enticed. 
The word enticed means trapped, to ensnare. It's like having a a wild animal that you set a trap for. The animal comes along, he's unsuspecting, and so he takes the bait that's in the trap. And that's exactly what Satan does. He baits the trap. His temptation is the trap, and he baits it. And when you reach in there, and you take that temptation, and you act on it, that's when it becomes the sin. So according to James chapter 1, sin is a process that starts with temptation. Temptation is what gives birth to sin. And so when you act on that desire, that's when it becomes sin. So the way, again, to battle temptation is right there in the thought processes. Get rid of it then, leave it there, and don't enter into it. Now we say, well, that's great. I mean, we're getting somewhere with this. So how do we actually resist this temptation? Well, there are actually two ways that are given in this text. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, explains two ways that we overcome temptation. The first one is to remember that others have faced the same temptations. He says here that all temptations are common to man. And so that means that you'll not find one temptation that somebody has not already faced before. And then I might add, you will not find a temptation that someone has not overcome before. Those of you that are adults here today, have you taken note about how temptations change? The temptations that you have now are not the same temptations that you had when you were younger. You faced one set of temptations then, but now that you're older, there are new temptations that come along. Young people, for instance, they're tempted to cheat in school, and you may do that. They're tempted to experiment with drugs and with, and with teenage sex. I'm not going to ask you adults to raise your hands and tell me how many of you entered into those kinds of sins, but you're aware that those temptations were there. They were there when you were young, and, and maybe by now you've sown all your wild oats, and so you're not tempted to do the same things that you did when you were young. But those temptations, maybe they're gone, but there are new temptations that are, that are now upon you. There are new things that, that the devil has put in front of you. So you have all these new temptations that take the place of the old. Well, there are young people that look at this and they, and they have these temptations and they have these strong urges and they say, this thing must be unique to me. Nobody's ever gone through this before. I can't resist this temptation. I can't overcome it. In fact, the Bible says there is not one single temptation that somebody has not already faced and they were strong enough to overcome it. And if they were strong enough to overcome it, you are also strong enough. Now, I'm going to explain that statement a little bit more later. So children, teenagers, adults, it doesn't matter who you are, someone has faced those temptations. And I'm going to go one better than that. Every temptation that you have faced is a temptation that Jesus also faced. Now, there's something very special about Jesus. Jesus was as much human as he was God. He was just as much a man as he was God. And Jesus grew up just like every one of us. So Jesus went through a child stage, he went through the teenage years, and then he became adult, an adult. And you know what the scripture says about him? For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now you read that and you say, well, wait, wait, wait just a minute. Wait a minute. 
Do you mean that Jesus was tempted as a child to disobey his parents? Absolutely. He had that same temptation. Do you mean as a teenager that Jesus was tempted to to cheat in school? He sure was. He had the same temptation. Do you mean that Jesus even had sexual temptation? Absolutely. The Bible says that he was tempted in all points like as we are. And yet Jesus overcame all of those temptations. As a child, as a teenager, as an adult, he came through every temptation unscathed. Now, I know you're probably thinking, well, well, yes, but, but he was God, so he had this special ability to overcome temptation that I don't have. I, I can't overcome them like Jesus overcame them. You know that's not true? And it's not true because of the next reason that you can overcome temptation. Look at verse number 13 again. And there are four vital words that you need to see. But God is faithful. So how do you resist? You rejoice because God is faithful. You remember that others have faced the same temptations, but you rejoice because God is faithful. You might not always be faithful, but God is always faithful. And the same power that enabled Jesus to overcome temptation is the very same power that you have today. So what is it that God's faithful to do? Well, we notice that there are two things in these verses, two promises that God will do, that he's faithful to do. Number one, God limits your load. God limits the load. Now, I want you to notice very carefully what the Scripture says here and what it does not say. There are many people that have developed a theological maxim out of 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that is actually wrong. Many times you'll hear people say, God will not put more on you than you can bear. This verse does not say that. If you've ever lost a child, if your children have ever brought you heartache, if you've lost your mate, your husband or your wife, if they've died, if your wife or your husband left you, If you face any kind of terrible tragedy in your life, you can well attest that there are many things that are on you that you can't bear. There are people that commit suicide over these things. People go into deep depression over these kinds of things because they can't bear them. That is, they can't bear them if they're not Christians. God does allow more on you than you can bear. But he doesn't allow more on you than he can bear. Paul wrote this, he said, or rather Peter said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. And so you may be weighted down with grievous burdens. There may be many, many things that you absolutely cannot bear, and you will fall beneath the load of that. But the Bible says that Jesus will carry the load for you. So does God put more on you than you can bear? He does. But he doesn't put more on you than he can bear. Well, then what is it that this verse says? What does it actually say? Well, let's read it again. It says, he will not suffer you. That means he will not allow you to be tempted above or more than ye are able. Tempted is the operative word here. Burdens are not limited because God carries the burdens for you. But it says here that temptations are limited. God limits the load. Now, here's what the psalmist said. He said, For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. 
The Bible says that God knows our frame. In other words, he knows exactly what your frame was built to handle because he's the one who made you. He formed you out of the dust. And so he knows how much dirt can handle. No, that's something we ought to consider sometimes when we get too big for our britches, that the Bible says that we are made out of dirt. We need to remember that. And when you do, that'll take you down a notch or two when you think that you're really somebody. But the scripture says, he knows our frame. How many of you here have a pickup truck? All right, we've got some rednecks in the audience. Some of you have a half-ton pickup truck. And what does that mean? Well, it means that a half-ton pickup truck can safely carry a half-ton load. Some of you have a three-quarter-ton pickup, and that means it can carry a three-quarter-ton load, and it goes up from there. What you don't do is you don't take two tons and put it in a half-ton pickup. Why don't you? Because it will break the frame. And this is what this verse is saying. God knows our frame. He knows that each of us is built with a different frame, and he knows exactly how much temptation that your frame can take. And so he made a promise here. It says that he's faithful. He will never allow a temptation to come into your life that you cannot handle. And so when I said a moment ago that you have temptations that come and you can overcome them, this is the reason. Because God limits the temptation. There's not going to be a temptation that comes that you can't handle. So here's God. He's taken care of it. And when you say, well, I can't handle temptations, you say the temptation is so great, it can't be done. It will never happen. Because God limits the load of temptation that he puts on you. Now notice the next thing that he says about God's faithfulness. The next thing is that he provides an exit. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. And so he gives you an escape so that you don't have to go through that, uh, you don't have to go on with that temptation. Now here's the thing that happens with temptation. The devil comes to you, and he makes you think that this thing is really good. If you do this, you will enjoy it. You'll feel better. It will make you popular. People will think more highly of you. They'll notice you more. And generally, the devil just tells you this is going to be an all-around good experience if you'll just go through with temptation. With every temptation, you're faced with two doors. Now, what we have here is the spiritual version of let's make a deal. Only we don't have three doors, we have two doors. And Satan has this door that over the top of it, it's marked sin. And he tells you everything you want is behind this door. Just walk through the door and it'll be so good, you'll be so happy. Everything you want is right there. But you have another door over here that's marked exit. And that's the door that you want to take if you want to overcome your temptation. So every Christian, every time that a temptation comes, you have those two doors. You have the door of sin that you can walk through, or you have the exit door that you can walk through, and you don't enter into the temptation. So you have this choice to make. Walk through one door, or you walk through the other. Now, Paul gave these examples in the old, of the Old Testament things here, of the children of Israel, and what we notice about them is that Israel did not walk through the exit doors. Every time that there was an exit door where they could have escaped, they didn't take that way. They took the door of sin. 
Now let me give you another example. You remember that one day, uh, King David was walking around on the roof of his house. Now back in those days, the, the roofs were flat, and so people would go up there uh, to walk around or to sit in the sun. In evening, in evening time, they would go up there on the roof and they would converse with one another. But David was up on the roof walking around one evening, and he spied a woman named Bathsheba who was taking a bath. Now, perhaps Bathsheba wasn't as careful as she should have been, but David saw her. And David, right then, had an exit door. David saw her, but he had an exit door. And what he could have done, he could have just turned his eyes away. He could have said, I shouldn't be looking at that. But instead of taking the exit door, David decided to keep on looking, and so he turned from innocent sight into a peeping tom. Well, he didn't take the exit door. So he missed one of these exit doors. He didn't walk through it. What David did then, he had this woman brought to him. He had his servants bring Bathsheba to him. Now, all the time that he's waiting on Bathsheba to come, David also had exit doors because he could have said, you know, that really wasn't the right thing. I looked. I shouldn't have done that. But so what I'll do when they get here, I'm going to lock my door so they can't get in. He had an exit door, but David didn't do that. She came, he looked at her again, he desired her, and then he committed adultery with her. So every step of the way, all along the way, David had doors that were marked exit. Well, what did David do? I mean, did did he have the strength to overcome that temptation? Of course he did. David could have stopped at any moment, but he chose not to do that. He liked the door that was marked sin better than he liked the door that was marked exit. So every time that there is a temptation that comes along, there's this door, there's an exit door. The Bible says that God is faithful to do this. He has provided you with an exit. And so what you could have done, you could have turned very quickly and gone through that exit door. But so many times what we do is we choose the door that's marked sin. Now let me take just a moment as I finish the message today to tell you just a little bit about this exit door. On this exit door, there are actually three words that are written. Written on the exit door. The first word is the word cross. When you're ready to commit that sin, you may think, well, what's the harm in this? It's only a minor thing. This really won't hurt anything. But it does hurt. Jesus died for sin. Every sin that you commit drives the nails deeper into the hands of Jesus. Every sin that you commit as a Christian, that sin had to be dealt with on the cross. Isn't that what the cross was for? It was the punishment of sin. Jesus was taking the penalty of sin. And so for every sin that is committed, Jesus has to take more punishment for it. Now here's something that I believe the Word of God teaches. There is a corresponding weight of sin for every infraction. A corresponding weight of punishment, I should say, for every infraction. Every sin brings a corresponding weight of punishment. And so the more sins that there are, the more that Jesus had to be punished. Now, remember here, we're talking about things God dwells outside of time, so he's not looking at this as far as time is concerned. So whenever you commit a sin, you are causing greater punishment that came upon Christ. Now, the second thing that is marked on this exit door is the word consequences. Every sin hurts Jesus, and eventually that sin will hurt you. Now, you you might try to take that old Christian cop out and you say, oh, but but I'm so weak and, and I can't help it. The Lord knows that I'm weak, 
And so if I enter into this sin, Jesus will forgive me of it. And you know that's true. If you're a Christian, uh, God forgives the sins of every believer. All of your sins are forgiven. But the thing is, you still have to live with the consequences. The sin will be forgiven. But while you're in this life, you will deal with consequences. David sinned with Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. And you know what happened to David? He had to try and cover up that sin. And so he committed another sin. He had her husband Uriah killed. But David had to live with the consequences of all that because Bathsheba was pregnant. And that baby that belonged to David and Bathsheba, God took the baby's life. David had to live with the consequences of his sin. And so young people or old people, doesn't matter what age you are, that fleeting moment of indulgence that you think it's really not going to hurt, it's really not going to matter, it has a consequence. You can be sure there is a consequence and you have to live with that consequence. Now there's actually a third word that's written on this exit door and it's the word confess. Now if you don't take the door of sin and you avoid that door, how do you do it? Well, you confess the name of Jesus. You confess the words of the scripture. You confess all the promises that we read in the word of God. You confess your right as a Christian to be able to resist the temptation of the devil. You confess. But what happens if you walk through that door? What if you enter into the sin? Well, you do the same thing. You still confess. You can't do anything about the failures that you've gone into, but you need to confess in order that you can make things right with God so you can be restored to fellowship. That's exactly what David did. David confessed his sin to God, and so God restored him to fellowship. But because David missed that very first exit door, And because he acted upon his sin, we're still using David as an example 3,000 years later. What Paul is trying to say to us is that you can resist the temptation because God has promised you that you can do it. One thing that you'll find out as a Christian, you will never become sinless. As long as you're in this life, you will never become sinless. But you can come to the place where you sin less and less. And the way that you do it is right here in God's Word. You resist the temptation. So Paul's words of advice, if you think that you're standing, if you think that you are so spiritual that you could never miss an exit door, you had better be careful. You could be in danger of falling. You may lose your balance. And the only way that you can avoid it is to claim God's promise. What are they? Remember, others have faced the same temptations, and they beat those temptations. Remember and rejoice that God is faithful. He will not allow you to be be tempted above your abilities, and God always provides an exit. So be careful, Christians. Don't lose your balance. Don't become a spiritual castaway. Don't become a Christian that's ineffective in God's service. Because you've fallen, you can resist temptation, You just have to rely upon God's promises. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we know that we have sin that enters into our life. There are temptations that come. But Lord, help us to very clearly understand that you have provided a way of escape. We don't have to enter into sin. We have the power of God that rests upon us. And you've given us a promise. You'll never tempt us above anything that we're able. You always make a way of escape. 
I ask you to speak to some Christian today, and if they are in some sin right now, that they would confess that sin and get back into fellowship with you. Then, Lord, I also pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, that you would speak to their hearts, open their hearts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and may they understand that Jesus bore the punishment of our sin, and if we will just trust him, then he'll take all of those sins away. We thank you, Lord, for your word and for what we've learned today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.